0: You're welcome. Everybody, have a copy of the handout. I'm going to give you something else, and you have to you have to do something with it right away. When I give it to you, right on right on the top, uh, that this is Pastor Nelson's sermon. This is I did not write this sermon. This is I don't want to take credit for it. Uh, oh. Pastor, <laughs> depending on how you take it, how how you like it. <laughs> um, Pastor Nelson preached this yesterday, and it was just. It was too good for me to pass up the opportunity to share it with this larger crowd, and to um, and it applies in in pretty vivid ways. But right up, I, just just so you know, right up on the top. This is Pastor Nelson. This is not, not me. He was gracious enough to make lots of copies for everybody. So, Vicar, you need some copies of stuff. All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord God Heavenly Father. Illumine the hearts of those who adore you with your love. You are the only hope of the world. Through you our tears are wiped away, and we are freed from the snares of death, and we pass over into everlasting joy. Reveal your beauty to us through the cross. Help your servants who ask for mercy and faith, and bestow upon us the fruits of that faith. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so there's a lot to do. We have a special guest I should just introduce very briefly, uh, Pamela, who is the uh, presenter for the Women's Retreat this evening. So welcome to Pamela. Thank you for joining us this whole weekend. We're so glad to have you here. Um, It's a delight to have you, and I'm glad you could join us for for this class as well. Um, So uh, any questions? (laughs) Okay. Okay. any, so let me narrow that down. Any questions from stuff that's come before today? Okay. Good. So now we're on pages 160 to 177. And rather than asking you whether you have any questions, let me ask you, how did you feel about these three chapters? I just to say it. Not a whole lot. <laughs> not, <laughs> not a, you didn't think a whole lot about them, is that? Well, <laughs> and then I'll put it Aha! Very good. As a matter of fact, it is a different century. Okay. Okay. So there's just a couple things by way of preface. So the three chapters. The first one is the three personal gods. So he spends this chapter on the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. And already, um, by saying that, you're starting to fall asleep. Um, then he talks about time and beyond time. He gets the the the, chap- the fourth chapter, "Good Infection." That's a little bit more evocative title. Um, uh, but What he's dealing with here um, are fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. How do we understand who God is? Now, this is really important, and it was really important, in fact, in a different century. Um, So the formulation that we have of how we understand who God is, in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? This comes to us from um, the 4th century, the Nicene Creed. Or, sorry, the 5th century. The Nicene Creed was written in the 5th century, okay? Um, How does it, some of the things, uh, I believe in God, the the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, right, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, right, Father, Son, Spirit, right, we've got this uh, understanding of God, and then packed into that are all of these descriptors, for instance, uh, the Son, begotten, not made, begotten of the Father from all eternity, right, Um, all of these things, all these little things that we say every week, they're crucial. And I'll tell, you, I'll tell you right off the bat, although they may not seem very important to you, here is why they are important and why it's good that we, why it's good that we confess them. Um, when the church was sorting things out after Jesus ascended into heaven, after he gave the apostles his Holy Spirit and uh, sent them out and said, teach everybody everything that I commanded you, they said to themselves, well, wait a minute, what, <laughs> what did you command us, right? And so they had to go back and take a look, right? They, they, thinking about the things that Jesus said Rereading the scriptures, the Old Testament, in view of Jesus and everything that he taught and everything that he did, now the question for them was, um, what, are, what, are we, what are we as the church? What are Christians? Um, and what do we confess? What do we say about God? Now, if you're a philosopher um, and you don't, and you don't uh, have the Bible at hand, you might come up with a God who is, like Plato's, God, the, the first cause, He's just sort of the origin of all things. But that God is kind of, um, di- is very distant, right? It's a God who's not personal. There's no, there's no personality to that God. It's just the beginning of all things. Well, we, uh, we already, as soon as Jesus shows up at that point, I mean, even before then, but it's when Jesus shows up, we have to reckon with the fact that God is personal, right? In fact, as Pastor Bruzek preached on Sunday morning, right, um, the way he described how love Love is uh, of such a character that it can be, what? Crucified, scourged, whipped, scorned, and crucified. That is, and God is love, right? So this is the character of God. He, he's personal. Um, uh, now, that, that blows out of the water every kind of philosophical conception of God you might have. Um, because the, a philosophical conception of God um, would be impersonal. But we, ha- we know lots of things about God that says that he is personal, okay? So now, the, uh, the early church um, spent a lot of time thinking about this and arguing about this. And some people had a really hard time saying um, some of the very important things that we say about Jesus. For instance, that he is true God. Or, alternately, that he was actually true man, right? So they argued about these things, um, and they argued about them... Based on Scripture, and they said, and, and then they said, some things just don't make sense. Um, well, the Nicene Creed comes on the side, comes down on the side of Scripture. In fact, if you look at in your bulletin on a Sunday morning, you'll notice right beside every line in the Nicene Creed, there's Scripture passages to support it. That's all important because it's not something that we made up. It's not something that the Church made up. This is this is what Scripture says about God, about Jesus. But why is it so important? Why is it so important that? We say, for instance, that Jesus is true God and true man, right? Well, what's at stake is, uh, is, is Jesus himself and what he does for us. We're always trying to protect. When, when we formulate doctrine, when we say the creed, we're protecting, we're guarding, we're keeping the glory of Jesus, the glory of Christ, right? So the fact that he is true God is all important because no man can bear the sins of the world no man can be a perfect sacrifice no man can can live a perfect life be perfectly obedient right it's all important that jesus be 100% human because god can't die right so jesus has to be human because god can't die so now we have this thing this this union between god and man which which blows out of the water um, every category that, that, uh, that philosophers have used to this point. They said you can't have something which is two con- mutually exclusive things at the same time. Well, we say, in fact, we do have such a thing. In fact, we have it all over the place in Christianity, right? So Jesus is true God and true man um, in the Lord's Supper. It's bread and its body, right? Um, uh, God is one God, three persons. And this is what, uh, what uh, Lewis is dealing with here in Book 4, Chapter 2 this fact that God is uh, one God and three persons. And this is, um, again, all important because what we we say about God has everything to do with how God relates to himself. So we understand God uh, because of the relationship between the Father and the Son, right? The relationship between the Father and the Son and the fact that both are true God. Okay, so we'll see a little bit more about why this is important as we go along. And this is, um, this is stuff to wrestle with, but it's also stuff that is um, beyond comprehension, right? So the uh, the Lutheran confessions, um, the, the documents that were written in the 16th century after the time of Luther that the Lutherans all signed on to and said, this is what, we're Lutherans and this is what we believe, right? We teach, we believe, teach, and confess these things. Um... They said about a lot of things, especially the Lord's Supper. They said, "We're here. We have to use new categories. We can't talk about things in the old way anymore. We can't talk about things um, uh, uh, using common language. We have to. We have to say that it's different than the way the rest of the world works because it's. We're dealing here with with the infinite, right? We're dealing with God. Does that make sense? Everybody on board so far? That's why this is important. Um, now." Uh, again it 's incomprehensible, so what we 're going to do, what Lewis does is he tries to give us a bunch of a bunch of pictures to try and understand how this works, and uh, the pictures are always going to fall short one way or the other but what 's helpful is noting where the pictures line up and where they fall short, right so where they line up helps us to to, to, to sort of grasp at um, what we say about God and where they fall short helps us to keep out of, to, to keep from saying false things about God, okay? Make sense? So for instance, uh, we'll we'll look at this in just a second. He he gives the example of a uh, a cube, right? A cube is composed of six squares, six sides. He says an analogy, right? So it's one cube, but it's six squares. Where this analogy falls short is the fact that you can't say about any one of those squares that it is 100% of the cube. In fact, it's only ever one-sixth of the cube, right? Whereas in the case of God, we say that Jesus is one of the three persons of the Trinity, but he is also 100% of God, right? Okay? Um, so we'll get to that. Um, any questions at this point? Bear with me. I'm going to try and keep this exciting. I know that... Uh, <laughs> I know that it's... <laughs> this, is the, this is the stuff that we in, uh, in our classrooms get really excited about at the seminary, but... Uh, it <laughs> isn't always very exciting in translation. So if you have no questions, what we're going to do is we're going to just sort of fly through um, what Lewis says here. What I think is a more interesting... So you can, you can look in the New Testament and you can see... Um, if you wanted to talk about the Trinity, where would be the first place you'd go to, to kind of know about the Trinity? Can you think of an example in the, in the, in the New Testament? Okay, yeah. In the, okay, in, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. So there you learn about Father and Son. Perfect. Okay, and 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 um, and you learn something about the character of Jesus, right? Jesus is the, in a, in some sense, the voice of God, right? Uh, again, it's an, it's, a, it's a picture that, that that falls short at some some level, um, because a voice pr- goes goes forward, um, the sound waves go out and then they diminish and they're distinct from the person who said them, right? But but Jesus is never separate from God. Um, okay, what what's another place? Baptism. Okay, um, uh, Matthew twenty-eight. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There you got it right there. There's the Trinity. Okay. So if you want to, that's that's the sort of um, the, one of the starting places for the vocabulary that we use. I think it's far more interesting. Um, it's important that we get that we that we say true things. But it's oftentimes far more interesting to look in look at the stories and uh, try to see um, how the Trinity is working in the story. So we're going to do that, if you you notice, on the third page. The story that we read in the devotions this morning, Genesis 22, we're going to ask the question, where is Jesus? Where is the Trinity in this story? So I want to get there. So let's fly through C.S. Lewis um, and see if we can sort things out a little bit um, as we go. Okay? Sound good? All right. Page 160 to 161. Um, and some of this, we ha- some of this. Uh, just for the sake of understanding, I want to just read again uh, a little bit, so that you can um, so you can grapple with it a little bit. He says in the second paragraph on page 160, a good many people nowadays say, "I believe in a God, but not in a personal God." So they feel that there is this mysterious being which is behind all others, other things, and it must be it must be more than a person. So they have this sense that it must be more than a person. But um, in saying, "I don't believe in," I don't believe in a personal God, I believe in, a, I believe in a, an all-powerful being. Um, they, they don't reckon with the fact that he is a person and, and more than a person, right? That God is personal and more than personal. So Lewis says, if you're looking for something super personal, something more than a person, this is the bottom of that paragraph, then it is not a question of choosing between the Christian idea and the other ideas. The Christian idea is the only one on the market. Then take a look at the bottom of the, next, of, the, of the next paragraph, which is on page 161. It is only the Christians who have any idea of how human souls can be taken into the life of God and yet remain themselves. In fact, be very much more than themselves than they were before. So you in baptism are joined to Christ. Now, if you were, if you were a follower of any other religion in the world, you'd say, well, that union then somehow integrates you so that you are no longer yourself. You're, you're God now, Right? Well, no. As a matter of fact, in baptism, you're joined to Christ, and this union is of a special character, it's a sacramental union. So that you are your, you are a person, Christ is a person, but you share, uh, you, you you share in his in his uh, in his um, in his divine life. You share his life. Okay, it's a special kind of union. You're not absorbed into him, so that you're you're not yourself anymore, right? Um, Christianity is the only the only religion that 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 can can maintain that. All right, because uh, we're willing to maintain these sort of paradoxical p- positions, right? That we can't that we can have it both ways. Um, if you're not comfortable with having it both ways, then being a Christian is <laughs> is going to be difficult because you have got to have it both ways all the time. And we'll see that in Genesis 22. Okay, any questions? Okay, he gives this great analogy about dimensions, and I just want to—I I think this is a really good analogy for not because it explains um, how the Trinity works, but it explains why we can't understand it, right? So, um, if you think back to geometry, um, you have you have uh, these constitutive elements, right? <laughs> I'll draw some pictures. This will help, maybe. If it makes you angry, I'll stop. Okay. So in geometry. There are these, you, you, you can break things down into several components. You have points, right? And that, that actually is not a point because it occupies some space. Okay? So I could measure this. A point is, a point is, this is representing a point. A point is like, it's, it's a nothing. Okay? Now, if you take a point and you extend it, you get a line. And again, this isn't really a line because it has a width, right? I can can measure it's about an inch tall, right? So we're still approximating here, right? Now, if you live in a uh, a two-dimensional, or or, sorry, a one-dimensional world, suppose you are a point on a line. All you know is forward and backward, right? You might not know that this line is actually a part of a square, and there I already made it in three dimensions, so I screwed up. um you might not know that this is part of a square. Uh in fact you wouldn't know that. Uh because you can't you can't see other dimensions, right? Um, this is okay, thank you. Thank you. It's a parallelogram. Good. You didn't know this was going to be geometry 101 today. Okay. Um you don't you don't know that you um, that you, all you know is forward and backward. You don't you don't know left and right, okay? Same thing if you're on this parallelogram, suppose you are um you're two dimensional spot on this parallelogram you live in a two-dimensional world you know that there's left and right and forward and backward but you don't know anything about up and down right okay um so lewis's point is we are three dim- four-dimensional creatures right space and time we have we have this reckoning of time but we can't we can't comprehend we can't picture we have no way to understand uh what another dimension would consist of now. Science does all kinds of kooky things. If you've ever, did you, anybody see the movie Interstellar? Okay. If you've seen any, anybody watch Star Trek? No. Uh, okay. I haven't watched Star Trek. I promise you. Um, the uh, the uh, you, there's all kinds of you know interesting thought experiments you can do about what what happens when you entertain the idea of other dimensions. Well, Lewis's point is um, understanding the fact that God is three persons and one being is kind of like uh, trying to be a two-dimensional, uh, living in a two-dimensional world and imagine a third dimension, right? It's it's outside of it's completely outside of the scope of your experience. You can't comprehend it. You can, you could, uh, you could, you can make analogies for it. You could, uh, you could, um, uh, you can try and describe it, but the, your descriptions are always going to fall short. Okay, makes sense. Krista, yes. But Jesus had How's that? Okay so, okay, so Jesus, uh, and, and that has to do with Jesus' infinitude, right? So he can be in any place. He, Jesus, can, Now, this is another one of those both ends, right? So Jesus is a person, a physical body. He has a body. Um, and one of the hard and fast rules of science is that two bodies cannot occupy the same space at the same time, right? Well, Jesus says, forget about that. I can, I can do whatever I want, right? So uh, you're right. And, and it's beyond our comprehension. This is why this is this is in fact why um, why the Reformed Church says it can't be bread and body, right? It can't be bread and body because you can't have bread and body occupying the same space. There's there's only so much space there. You can't have them both in the same space, okay? And we say Jesus said so, so we're gonna go with what Jesus said, (laughs) and it's beyond our comprehension, okay? Let's keep moving. I, don't, I really don't want to run out of time. Um, okay. I didn't give a page for this one. In God's dimension, so to, oh, we talked about this already. In God's dimension, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. So you see, you get you get this this glimpse at it, but then you see how it falls short, right? So six squares, they what do they have in common in the cube? What do those six, six squares share? Sides, right? They share a part of the cube. But none of those squares is the cube, okay? The cube is, in fact, something more than any of those individual squares. That's where the analogy falls short. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they have lots of things in common, including their godness, their divinity, all right? So they are all God, um, and, and 100% so, okay? The whole threefold life of the three-personal being is actually going to is going on in that ordinarily little... Okay, so, okay, I should, by, by way of introduction, what are we talking about here? Page 163, it, it, Lewis is particularly interested in saying that um, we understand, it's valuable to understand uh, God's inner life, inner Trinitarian life, the fact that there's Father, Son, and Spirit, and how they relate to each other. It's helpful for us to understand that because that helps us to understand how we relate to God or the fact that we can relate to God kind of like in this this baptismal way, so that we can be united to God without losing our personhood, okay? And so that's what he's talking about here, uh, talking about somebody who is kneeling down to say their prayers. Um, So the whole threefold life of the three-personal being, this is the first full paragraph on page 163, um, is going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. That man is being caught up into into higher kinds of life, what I call zoe, the, the Greek word for, uh, for life, or spiritual life. He's being pulled into God, by God, while still remaining himself. So, it's, in a sense, just like how Jesus can be God while still being Jesus. Not being the same person as the Father. He's a different person than the Father, but he, is, um, pull, he, is in, he, shares, he shares in this divinity with the Father. Okay? Everybody good? Let's keep going. Um, oh, and then this, this helpful comment. Um, so if you're, again, like, as I said, if you're a philosopher and you sit in your armchair and you think about God, um, you're never going to come up with this idea on your own, right? You're never going to say, hey, I suppose that all of these things that don't make sense, these are the, these are the things that describe God. You're going you're to use your reason and say, God must be this way. God must be impersonal. He must not be human Right? He must uh, never die. he must be indivisible, right um, he, All of these things and the, all of these characteristics of God, um, but you 're never going to say he 's three persons and one one God and, and this for Lewis is, is really important. one sixty four he says, when you come to knowing God, the initiative lies on his side. If he does not show himself, nothing you can do will enable you to find him, and this is why. Um, why we don't start with the Trinity. Um, in fact, this, is, this comes pretty, pretty late in the, in the picture, right? In the, pretty late in the book. You might, if you're, again, if you're a philosopher, you always start with trying to understand God up here. Where do we start as Christians? Where do we start? What's, what's our starting place for understanding the Christian faith? Jesus, right. And, um, and we can back up even further. Um, Jesus meets us, we, we, we meet Jesus, we start with Jesus because we've started with an understanding of ourselves, right? We start with, we, we say, we're sinners um, in need of a Savior, and the Bible has something to say about that. So we start with Jesus. Jesus reveals us to God. It's a totally upside down way of doing things, right? So if we're going to talk about God, let's start by talking about this human, right? But that's the, way, that's the way we Christians do it, because no one comes to the Father except through me. Right? That's what Jesus says. Um, no one can see God and live. Well, Jesus, Jesus, we need Jesus in order to in order to for us to see God. Okay? Any questions? I think what me, the Holy Spirit in right. okay. He gives him some credit in the fourth chapter. We'll give him we'll give him some credit there, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say right off the bat, that it's okay, it's okay not to give the Holy Spirit too much credit for, for one important reason. The Holy Spirit um, never talks about himself. The Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does is, it's like a, a sign pointing to Jesus, right? So it's important that we understand how Jesus can be God. That's, that's the most important thing, how Jesus can be God. And when we talk about the Spirit, what we, what we end up doing is we find ourselves... Talking about the Spirit, and then all of a sudden we're talking about Jesus again because He's redirecting our attention to Jesus. Okay, um, the Spirit without Jesus is does us no good. Okay, so that, so that's that's I suspect why he why you you sense a neglect here. But we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go along. All right, spirit, you're, kind of how... you're absolutely right. So the Spirit is um, is one of the persons of the Trinity. Um, and, and Lewis describes, Lewis talks about um, the relationship between the Father and the Son um, being the source from which the Spirit proceeds. That's the way the, the creeds talk about it too. He, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, so the Spirit is um, is not separable from is not is not separable from the Father and the Son, right? Um, uh, the, on the last page, just take just take a look at the last page real quick. Um, just this first, the first underlined, highlighted line there. Um, by classical Augustinian doctrine, the Spirit is the vinculum amoris, the bonding love between the Father and the, the Father and the Son. It should be Son. That's a bad typo. Should be the Father and the Son. Okay. So the the Spirit is the bonding love between the Father and Son. Exactly, exactly right. Yes. Now, um, perfect. Equal in their divinity, equal in their power, equal in their glory, right? But the Father doesn't come and be, uh, doesn't come to earth and become a man. The Son does, right? The Father doesn't die on the cross. The Spirit doesn't die on the cross. The Son does. Um, and Jesus says, "This again, it's paradoxical, right? So we want to have the whole thing Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. So you don't, you, don't, you don't get to have the Father apart from the Son. You don't get to have the Spirit apart from the Son. And the Son is, is Jesus is our starting place for everything. Does that, does that make sense? Um, equality. Equality is, is, a, uh, is all important. And if you've ever um, recited the Athanasian Creed. Have you ever done that? Yes. Okay. I, I, okay, so uh, you know how you know how it sounds at least, right? Um, I, can't, I, I can't even begin to recite it, right? So, so they are they are they're equal, um, all God, all God, all God, not the same person, not the same person, not the same person, right? All powerful, all powerful, all powerful, not the same person, not the same person, not the same person, right? That's how it goes, okay? Um, uh, and what's what's what we've learned in scripture, and this is where. The narrative of Scripture is so important to us. Um, what we learn in Scripture is that Jesus is is God's emissary to us. Jesus is our access to God, okay, mediator. our mediator, precisely, our high priest, right? Holly, okay, Krista, <laughs> but through the Holy Spirit, we, we cannot believe without the Holy Spirit. That's absolutely right. <laughs> but what does the Holy Spirit do? He gets us to believe in Jesus. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so. Here's the Holy Spirit. He says, believe in Jesus. Okay? Jesus, all right? So think, keep that in mind, all right? The, the, um, it, uh, anyway, we'll move, We'll keep going. We've got lots to talk about. That's disciples were given the Holy Spirit in right. order to preach the word. So, to preach. The, exactly. They had Jesus before. that. So that the Holy Spirit does give something other it, than just one. Another. The Holy Spirit energizes them to preach Jesus, to preach the gospel, right? And when did they receive him? When Jesus left? That's right. Exactly. Okay. Good. Good questions. You guys are thinking about this, which is great. Um, you know, when Jesus in the Bible said um, only God knows uh, when the end of the world is going to happen. Yeah. Now, was he saying that because he was man? Or if he were saying it because he was God, would he know the answer? Okay. So he is God and he is man. He Now, the classic... So this is going to... Heard a little bit. The um, the dogmatic, classic, systematic answer to the question is: When Jesus said that, he was speaking according to his human nature. So naturally, according to his divine nature, he knows everything. Right? We're going to see this in Genesis 22. I um, can't wait to get there. It's going to be great. Uh, the same 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 sort of thing, right? Um, but it but to try and to try and um, reconcile those things because it's one person, is beyond, is beyond us. How can Jesus say he doesn't know when he knows, right? He's, he's speaking according to his human nature. And, and by saying that, all we're doing is we're saying, um, we're not saying this makes sense. We're just saying this is how we're going to talk about it. This is how we're going to describe it. Okay? All right? Good. Um, okay. Chapter 3. We'll keep going. Keep moving. Um, Just a little bit to say about this. Now, this is interesting because um, uh, it has to do with our conception of of God's relationship to to the world. And it's also very important because if you notice, if you notice, um, Christianity is a very historical religion, right? Um, uh, the, The gospel writers are all very concerned about, identifying that things happened at certain times and in certain places. Luke, right, when he, writes, when he writes about the nativity, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, right? He's telling us precisely when it happened. It was at that time that Jesus was born. It wasn't at any other time. Paul says, um, in, in the fullness of time, uh, Jesus came, born of a virgin, right? Uh, born, born under the law, right? In the fullness of time, when the time was right, God did this. Same thing throughout all of Old Testament history, right? Um, things happened at certain times. Now, if you were again, if you were a philosopher sitting in your armchair, you'd say, well, God, outside time, none of this should matter, right? Um, God should just, it should all just be a wash to him. It shouldn't make a difference, okay? So how do we understand, how do we understand the fact that um, we experience things as a linear, linear sequence of events? One thing happens before another, before another, And salvation history, the story of the Bible, occurs in that way. One thing happens before another, before another, and yet it's orchestrated by a God who is not inside time. How do we understand that, okay? This is what Lewis is getting at. Let's see what he says here. I forgot what quotation I gave. You and I tend to take it for granted that this time series, this arrangement of past, present, and future, is not simply the way life comes to us, but the way all things really exist. So he's saying, you and I... Our, our natural inclination, just like if you're a, a two-dimensional being, you, th- you assume there's no three dimensions. We assume, just by nature, we can't help it, that there's nothing, we, we can't conceive of something outside of time. Um, we tend to just assume that the whole universe and God himself are always moving on from past to future, just as we do. But le- many learned men do not agree with that. It was the theologians who first started the ideas, the idea that some things are not in time at all. Later, the philosophers took it over, and now... Some of the sci- scientists are doing the same. Okay, so here are my notes. Here, one is dimensionality. So it's just the same problem we experience um, as dimensional creatures. If you're two dimensions, you can't you can't conceive of um, three dimensions. Now, Lewis um, talks about scientists. So the um, the theory of relativity actually points to um, the fact that time is not as binding as we once thought it was. Okay, so. Um, The theory of relativity um, on one level says that time, how fast, the the rate at which time proceeds is related to how fast you are moving. Um, So if you're moving really fast, suppose at the speed of light, time is moving really slow, okay? And they've done experiments to confirm this. This is not just head knowledge, or not just speculation. So they put a clock on, a really fast plane. it flew it around the world, and when the clock landed, it had th- the time on it was different than the time that was on on the ground, confirming Einstein's theory of relativity. Okay, so all the uh, this is this is just stuff I enjoy. So um, the but the point is the point is um, it's not it's not beyond uh, it's not unrealistic to 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 posit that there is something beyond time or that time is not this fixed, immovable thing that we think it is, right? Okay? Now, uh, how do we understand God's relation to time? Take a look at the next page. This is a couple of pages from um, Capon's book, Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment. Um, and, he, he, and at the very end of the book, he, he's really interested in this question, and he, he um, has some, some, some diagrams which are helpful for understanding it. Okay? So first, he, look at that at the very top left. He says, this is how you and I think of history from moving from A to Z, sort of immovable, right? Um, it, it's unchangeable. The next second is going to happen no matter what, right? And it's going it's to happen and the last second is going to be behind me. Now, normally when we think of God, we, we think of him as being up in heaven in the clouds and his action in history as sort of following along, tracking our progress, and he come and he goes, he zaps down and, and does something, right? And then, um, and, and, but, but what that does, as you'll note in that diagram, is that um, it binds God along our, our track in history, right? So it assumes that God is sort of following along our track in history, and that's, that's to say that God is bound in time, right? So that can't quite be right. So Capon offers this alternate this alternate uh, view of it. He says, look at history and suppose that it's a body of water, A to Z. This is the third diagram, near, near the bottom of page 429. Now... Um, instead of uh, instead of God being as he says this uh, this interventionist needle um, and he's talking about like a sewing machine like a like a, uh, a making stitches in history, um, instead think of him as a divine iceberg present under time all the time so time time God, God can encompass all of time, which is another thing that's sort of behind our comprehension because as far as we 're concerned there's no there's no Time before which there was no time, and time we don't see an end to it. Right? It's not like a line that has two ends on it. So God's under history, and now look what happens when God, when when God intervenes in history. Um, you see, you see, He's acting in history all along, um, but we see His action more or in particular ways at different times in history. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, the, whether or not this is Completely accurate or helpful, um, it, it is up to you. But it is it is it is hopeful, it is helpful to note um, that it is it is a challenging thing to to wrap our minds around. Um, and this is especially challenging when we ask questions like, um, how can Jesus not know when the end of the world is going to be? Right? It doesn't he know doesn't he know everything? Right? Um, in Genesis twenty two, God says something. Um, he uses a te- he uses temporal language. He says, "Now I know," as if he didn't know before. Right? Um, how can that be? Uh, th- these are things that these are these are things that um, we don't really get answers to. But what's helpful to know that uh, that that the paradoxes exist in the Christian faith. Okay. Yes, Barb. I, I, I didn't do the reading, but, so I don't know if it was in that chapter. But C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, did write an example of. History, or how we feel about history, or are, by a book, is like... It, it, it is, in fact, in... in, in yes. yes, so, and look at that. It's right there. Suppose I'm writing a novel, he says. Page 167. Thank you so much. That was a perfect segue. Krista, Krista, just one second. Let's just do this, and then, um, and then we'll go to you, Krista. Now, uh, again, this is an analogy. Page 167. Um, and he, he identifies... Lewis is really good at this, too. When he gives an analogy he always tells you where the analogy falls short, which is really helpful. Because if he didn't, you might not think of it, and then you'd assume that it was the perfect analogy. And And it's great. It's great that he helps us out that way. Suppose I'm writing a novel. I write, Mary laid down her work. Next moment, I came a knock at the door. Bottom of page 167. For Mary, who has to live in the imaginary time of my story, there is no interval between putting down the work and hearing the knock. But I, who am Mary's maker, do not live in that imaginary time at all. Between writing the first half of that sentence and the second, I might sit down for three hours and think steadily about Mary. I could think about Mary as if she were the only character in the book, and for as long as I pleased, in the hours I spent doing so, would not appear in Mary's time, the time in the story, the story at all. Then he goes on. This is not the perfect illustration, of course, but it may give just a glimpse of what I believe to be the truth. God is not hurried along in the time stream of this universe any more than the author is hurried along in the imaginary time of his own novel. He has an infinite attention to spare for each one of us. He does not have to deal with us in the mass. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he had ever created. When Christ died, he died. This is, this is the gospel here. When Christ died, he died for you individually just as much as if you had been the only man in the world. Only, it's just, it's just I mean, how glorious is that? Here's how the illustration breaks down. In, 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 it, in it, the author gets out of one time series, that of the novel, only to go into another time series, right? So, the author writing the novel is bound by time in a different way, right? So um, either he's got to eat supper or he's getting, you know, or he's got to go to bed or he's got a deadline he's got to meet and so he's got to write the novel, right? There's t- he's bound by time. God is the, the author of a novel and he's got... And time is not, not there. So is he trying to make the point, is heaven just another dimension? Oh. <laughs> um... <laughs> um. Uh, well, the point, I think the, the very very simply the point he's trying to make is that it is incomprehensible to us like other dimensions are incomprehensible to us. But even to put it into the category of um, other dimensions. So suppose you said um, God is in the, a, a fifth dimension, right? Instead of space and time, there's, there's something else. Even then putting God in a box. It's a five-dimensional box, right? But you're putting him in a box. Well, I think God would be in all the dimensions, but... well, well, he is, yeah. he is Perfect. You guys sort that out over there. Okay, <laughs> hang on. we got to go back. You have got to get back to Krista here. I only want to say um, the, the history, that's only that we know that it's true. That, that, that's right. That, Jesus was born in, in, yeah. connect, in connection with the Old Testament. You know um, our former uh, uh, pope; he's writing about it, and in a wonderful, wonderful way, how everything is um, came together. This, this is this is perfect. It, it's great. So we don't get we don't get at God um, by like diving under that sea and exploring the iceberg, right? We only see God in when He enters history, when He when He reveals Himself to us. Okay, Jan. Yet God created time for us. In the beginning yep. God created and the morning and the evening were the first day because we in our not infinite wisdom couldn't have lived in the other realm. Yeah, he would have had to, he would have had to make us somehow different. Now, of course what's so great about, the, about redemption and about the future for us is that um, that heaven is going to be experiencing all the stuff that we just don't Get. Right? Holly. Can comment make me think of NT Wright's book okay. that we read in a few But it's like experiencing heaven here on earth because it's already happening for God. Yeah. And these are the ways that He's trying to interject heaven into our current yeah. time, our cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So, so think about. Uh, um, and, and this is a great way to think. So, I mean, God, God enters history all kinds of ways. Now, um, we, the writer of the Hebrews says, in many and various ways, God spoke to us, spoke to his people through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us through his son, right? Um, and uh, so if you want to think about God entering history, it's no longer, it's no longer um, a mountain peak at Abraham, a mountain peak at Moses, right? Jesus is here, Jesus is here now because he's he's united with you in your baptism. He's here, present in his word. He's here at the altar, right? So God, I mean, so etern- eternity is in a sense. Um, it, it's the, it, so the last thing I say right there, well, the both and. The other way to say it is the now and not yet, right? So now we have eternity. We have eternity. We get these. We get these tastes of it. This foretaste of it, um, and uh, we look forward to knowing what that's what that's going to be like, um, because, because the tastes that we get of it are so good, right? So when, when God comes and speaks to Abraham and gives him his promise and gives him a son and then raises his son from the dead, basically, um, he, has this, he has this taste of what heaven is going to be like, right? Okay. Good. Um, let's keep going. I'm going to talk faster now. Chapter 4. Um, now... Uh, Lewis spends a little bit of time here talking about the relationship between God and the, the Father and the Son, and he, he's interested in, 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 in explaining why Father and Son are good words to use. One good reason is that this is the language the Bible uses, right? But he also says um, uh, that there is this problem with it that we have to reckon with, we have to be careful about. Father is, only, is the only word to use, but unfortunately it suggests that, there is, that he is there first. This goes back to you, Jeanette, about, about them being equal, right? So you, you imagine a father and a son. Well, the father was there before the son was there. Not true. Begotten of his father from all eternity, right? If Jesus wasn't there from all eternity, then he's not 100% God, and then uh, dying on the cross doesn't do us any good. This is the Arian controversy of the 4th century, by the way. Um, he, had to be, he had to be there from all eternity, okay? Um, just as a human... Uh, so, unfortunately, it suggests that he is there first, just as a human father exists before his son, but that is not so. There is no before and after about it. In the same way, we must think of the son always, so to speak, streaming forth from the father like light from a lamp. This is on the bottom of page 173. Or heat from a fire or thoughts from a mind. He is the self-expression of the father, what the father has to say, and there was never a time when he was not saying it, okay? But as I said before, just like, you know, a voice going forth somehow, somehow has this distinctiveness from the one who said it, um, the analogy falls short. I was going to read to you a portion of this book. This is, uh, this is the, we've been reading this at home, and it just, it just clicked. This is great. Um, the Magician's Nephew is the first in Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Now, I, instead of reading it to you, I'll just tell it to you really fast. Um, uh, they enter this world, the characters enter this world that's completely ba- black, and what, they, what then starts to happen is they hear a voice singing, right? And as the voice is singing, the things that you, learn, you hear in the creation story start to happen, right? Light starts to appear. And then, oh, uh, I just have to read part of it because it's... And, and, and it's also good because this is, this is I think, what, uh, what Lewis has in mind the eastern sky changed from white to pink and from pink to gold. The voice rose and rose till all the air was shaking with it, and just as it had swelled to the mightiest and most glorious sound it had yet produced, the sun arose. Okay, so, it's the, so the voice, uh, and then this is Aslan the, the lion, right? Okay, the voice that he's the singing, the song that he's singing is, is creating the world. Now, this is, this is kind of the picture that, that Lewis has, has generated um, to depict it. Um, in 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 his fantasy novel, um, but that's but that's kind of what we're getting at here, right? Um, so, if you can imagine, and you can't, but if you could imagine that voice as always being there, as always coming from God, as never being separate from God, never being never being um, apart from God, that's what the that's what the relationship between the Father and the Son is like. Okay, all right, good. Here we get the Spirit, page 175. This is um, the first full paragraph, a couple of lines in. In Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. So that's how he describes the spirit. Now, uh, turn to the back page. This is from the fellow Robert Jensen. And he, again, he kind of like Lewis, tries to capture what's going on here. Um, and, and he shows how the analogy falls short, right? So look at, the, look at the highlighted section. By classical Augustinian doctrine, the spirit is the bonding love between the father and the son. But, he notes, when my wife and I speak of our love, we do not think of this as a third party. It is not an identity but a factor in our identities or rather in our identity with each other. Western theology, of course, knows that the spirit, as given by Jesus to teach of him, so this is Pentecost, right? The spirit is given by Jesus to teach of him, must be a personal identity. And, and we, we see this in the Old Testament, too. The spirit does things to people. It's not just this sort of um, ethereal thing. It's a person, right? It does things to people um, in... I wish we had more time in First Samuel. Um, Saul Saul gets the spirit; the, the spirit falls on him, and he starts prophesying. Okay, the spirit is is personal, um, but the abstract language ma- which makes the spirit a capacity or a power or a love often overwhelms this knowledge. So, so often we talk about the spirit as engendering, so like the fruits of the spirit, um, or, or a, a spirit of love, or a spirit of the community. Right. So often those things sort of Overwhelm, push aside the picture of the fact that the spirit is in fact a person. In, so now I should explain this. Maybe this hasn't, hasn't been clear. When I say person, it's actually really technical, technical language that theologians have used for a long time to talk about the difference between um, the es- between between a being and a person. Okay, so God is a being; he has one essence. One essence, one divinity, but there are three persons, um, Father, Son, and Spirit, okay? So I don't mean a person like you or I, but, um, and, and there's all these, there's all kinds of really tempting ways to, to short-circuit this. So for instance, I'm tempted to say a person is a manifestation of God, but that is not entirely true, right? Because that person is not just a manifestation of God, but is God, Okay? It's really hard to talk about. It's really hard to speak accurately about it. Okay, um, but anyway, that's what I. That's what it, That's what we mean when we say the spirit is a person. Okay. If you're confused, that's good. That means that uh, you haven't you haven't falsely thought that you that this all makes sense because it doesn't. Okay. Um. All right. Last thing. Page one. Last thing in Lewis, and then we're gonna do we're gonna do Genesis 22. Now. Um, middle of the paragraph, page 177. Now, the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that, that that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, then we shall be sharing a life which was begotten, not made, which has always existed and always will exist. Christ is the Son of God. Do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? If we share in this kind of life, we shall also be sons of God. We shall love the Father as he does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us he came into this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he had, he has, this divine life, by what I call good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else, okay? So this is, it, he sums up nicely here why it's so important that we understand, or why, why, we, why we grapple with this picture of the Trinity, why we, why we know that, that there are these three persons um, uh, that relate to us, these three person, this tri-personal God, this Trinity that relates to us, um, it's because that describes our life as Christians, right? So, for instance, the father and the son, um, love each other in a way that describes the way we ought to love each other as Christians. Self-giving, perfectly sacrificial, right? Um, and, and, uh, and unselfish, okay? All right. Let's look at Genesis 22 real quick. Any questions? Everybody good? Okay. Now, I think you know this story, but there are some. So, so um, we got five minutes. Um, there, there, there are just a couple of things I want to draw your attention to. And what. And what uh, so, we're not even going to get to Pastor Nelson's sermon. Um, so, okay. So, the, um, what I want to convey to you is that. In the Bible, um, we see all the time uh, the persons of the Trinity. We see God acting, the persons of the Trinity, um, all over the place. And um, we see them in different ways. So, in Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to go and sacrifice his son. And he goes up on the mountain and he binds Isaac. um, And he's going to sacrifice Isaac. Now, what does that make you think of? The crucifixion, right? Okay, so here we have a picture of the relationship between the father and the son, okay? So now the father loves his creation so much that he's willing to sacrifice his son. But um, you remember what the writer to the Hebrews says about about Abraham and his faith? Let me just read this to you real quick. Um, Hebrews 11. Give it a read sometime, Hebrews 11. If you want to, if you want sort of enrich your picture of the, the, Old Testament, he says about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, this is eleven seventeen, Hebrews eleven seventeen. When he was tested, offered up Isaac, who he had received the promises, who, who and he who had received the promises. So God had said to Abraham, you're going to have a son, and in him all the world is going to be blessed, right? And now he's told him to to kill Isaac, um, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So the picture is is just richly um, uh, cruciform, right? So it's just like the crucifixion. The Father offers up the Son and receives him back alive, okay? So we, we say about that that Isaac is a type of Christ. He's, a, he's an image of Christ. And, and Abraham here is... is is. Playing the role of, of father, so that is one way that all throughout the Old Testament we see uh, the Trinity at work. Right, we see Jesus and we see we see the Father, and we also see this this love. Notice what notice what um, we don't see it per, we don't see it in the form of a person here, but notice um, verse six. There's this really poignant section. Abraham took the word, took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So both of them went together. That's a bookend. Look for it again. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Okay? So the son submits obediently to his father in perfect love, perfect trust. Both of them went together. Um, He's silent as as a... lamb is silent before its shearers, right? Um, and he's perfectly obedient. So Abraham, his father, in the next, in the next verses, um, Abraham binds Isaac and lays him on the, on the altar, right? Um, certainly, you know, Isaac could have struggled a little bit or something, right? He didn't, right? He, um, he trusted his father, okay? So we have this image, this image. Now, the, uh, and, and if you read Pastor Nelson's sermon... You see it. Do, do that, please. Um, it, it's, it's another image of Jesus. And, and Pastor, the way that Pastor Nelson did it was brilliant. So oftentimes I'm sitting listening to a sermon and I've got my eyes closed and I'm thinking about this sermon. And when he got to the end of his sermon, I literally, literally I went like this. Okay? So um, read his sermon and I, hopefully it has that effect on you. It was great, okay? But, but it's the same kind of way that we see the relationship between uh, a way that we see Jesus... Um, in the Old Testament, okay? But we also see Jesus, we also see the relationship between the Father and the Son in another way. And this is really important. This is kind of the crux of it here in Genesis 22. Look at verse uh, 10. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, okay? The angel of the Lord, the Malach Adonai, okay? Um, The angel, the messenger, the one who goes forth with the words of the Lord. Who does that make you think that might be? The son of, well, it could be Gabriel, or the second person of the Trinity. The word, the one who who speaks, right? The one who speaks for God. The words that created uh, the world. The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son. So he says, I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Okay? You see what happened there? So first, the angel says, I know that, that you fear God because you have not withheld your son from me. Who has, who has Abraham not withheld his son from? God. Okay? Do you, you see it? So the angel of the Lord here is speaking of God in the, second, in the, in the third person and in the first person. Okay? Doesn't make any sense, but here it is. Okay, all right. Um, and also, it, this is this is such a rich, uh, rich passage for us here too. Because notice what he says. Um, if he's if he's God, he knows all things, and he's outside of time. But notice how he how he relates to time. Do not lay your hand on the boy, or do anything to him. For now, I know. As though he didn't know before. Now I know that you fear God. Okay. The, the test was a test of Abraham's faith, but it was a test uh, for God's sake, so that now he would know that Abraham, Abraham trusted him. Okay? Um, okay, we got to stop. Okay. Uh, yes, go ahead, Holly. Well, um, saying, I think this is very helpful he was saying if God always knew what we Yeah. But if God is saying to Abraham, now I know, even though Abraham chose, God is seeing all time at once. Yeah. but in a more vivid way i see that the father is the one who sacrificed his son right not jesus or right right yeah he so yeah yeah he was in complete control i guess absolutely jesus jesus gives up his spirit so um, and 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 the, and the father that's right yep it's it's at the father's it's at the father's hand it's not apart from the father's will right right um and, that, and Jesus prays in Gethsemane, right? If it be your will, let this... Let, and so it is the will of the Father that determines this, the, the crucifixion. Okay? Good job, everybody. Um, yeah, next week we have class, and then um, don't come on Good Friday. And then... Oh, just, a, just as for planning ahead, um, April 10th, you see it on your bookmark, if you have your bookmark. April 10th, we finish this book we're going to do another C.S. Lewis book. Not a book like Mere Christianity. It's a book called The Great Divorce. Okay? And, it's, a, and um, it's been a long time since I read it, so I couldn't summarize for you what it's about, except heaven and hell. Okay? And a bus. There's a bus and a bus stop involved. Okay? It'll be great. All right? Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.